from the heart of Dubai, where tomorrow is being built today to the world. Welcome to the CTO Show with Mehmet. Here, we redefine technology and reimagine possibilities. With Mehmet, delve into the riveting realms of AI, cybersecurity, and digital technology. Experience the thrilling highs and lows of startups. Immerse yourself in the spirit of entrepreneurship and witness the future of business innovation being written in real time. Now, without further ado, let's tune in and explore the future. Hello and welcome back to a new episode of the CTO Show with Mehmet. Today, I'm very pleased joining me from New York, Kat. Kat, she's the CTO of Letteron. Kat, the way I like to do it, I keep it to my guests to introduce themselves uh, because I believe no one can introduce someone else better than themselves. So the stage is yours. Uh, yeah, so my name is Kat Miller. I'm CTO of Flatiron Health. And my career has been in uh, predominantly health tech startups and startup technology. Thank you very much, Kat, again, for being on the show. So maybe it's like a kind of a traditional question, but what have you brought you, you know, to, to the tech world to be a CTO? And why specifically you have chosen, you know, the, the healthcare uh, to be your specialty? Yeah, well, why tech, um, I think is an interesting question and in that I don't know that I ever chose it. I think it chose me. So I, I went to MIT as, uh, in undergrad and I think uh, at the time, 33% of the, the student population was doing computer science. So I kind of did computer science because it was the thing that people were doing. And I graduated and I wasn't like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a computer scientist or I'm going to be, you know, on a tech career. Um, this is like the early 2000s. And so the world was a little bit different. And it just kind of kept sucking me in. Um, my first job was technically an analyst. And they were like, oh, you can code? <laughs> Great. You're going you're gonna to do code for us. And it, it just kind of continued like that, um, where I just kind of get, kept getting sucked back in. Why health tech? You know, it was an, it was an expressed preference. Like I, I didn't, I never like introspected and said, oh, I love health tech. But every time it came time for me to, to find a new role or, um, or look for other, other opportunities, I was always drawn to the healthcare opportunities. And so uh, that just became a theme over and over again. And it turned out like, oh yeah, I actually really care about healthcare. And I think it's also fascinating. Like I find the everything from the economics to the biology of it really interesting. Yeah, that's quite interesting. And you know, actually it's, um, I'm a little biased because I have technical background. So already technical people usually, they, they do a lot of job that people they don't see. And you know, when you do this in another sector like healthcare, which is also helps people usually with their health, which is the most important thing in life. So I think this adds, you know, like a double kind of a service over there. Now, um, when we talk about technology in healthcare, which is health tech, basically, there's a lot of things that goes in. But I know, Kat, uh, for a fact, you know, with, the, with the, your current work at your current company. So you focus a lot on, you know, the, the data analytics. Can you a little bit tell me more, like, what exactly at uh, Flatteron you do, you know, and what kind of solutions you offer and uh, why, you know, data is very important in, in healthcare and in general as well. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I'll start by just saying the mission of Flatiron is to improve and extend uh, lives by learning from the experience of every cancer patient. 
So historically, what that's meant is that we use data generated at the point of care, so data that comes from routine care of patients. And we, we take that and we say, okay, if we could learn from every single patient with cancer, what, what insights could, could be developed in the world, right? So only 5% of patients are on clinical trials. So everyone else is a story that's lost to history unless you capture it in some way. So the fundamental idea was, hey, there's all this data out there. There's so much we could learn from it. Let's capture it and make it usable. And that, that's like the history of the company. And we're now in a phase where we're expanding that. So historically, we've been in the US. Um, we're expanding internationally. And we're also saying, hey, we have these pieces of infrastructure. How do they apply to things like clinical research or how can we expand point of care solutions? So that's like the like the, the top level, like what we yeah. are as a company. Um, but I can give you some like maybe better examples of like why you should care. Sure. Like, you know, I, th I think maybe... Uh, the idea of like, okay, we could learn from these patients resonates, but people are often the next question is like, okay, but how? Mm -hmm. um, and so this real world data, this data that's generated from patient experiences. One thing that's really interesting for me, having been in this for almost 10 years now, is the amount of blindness that we used to have to uh, how many patients are diagnosed at a certain stage of cancer or even you know, how many patients are treated with a particular drug or all these things that were are like very fundamental to understanding the cancer patient population were things that 10 years ago, we, we really didn't have a great handle on. So what these things let you do is, for, is speed drug development, everything from what patients are, where are underserved populations that we should be targeting uh, to uh, how do I design a clinical trial that's actually going to recruit and be successful. So, and successful in this case, I don't even mean, you know, whether the molecule is good or not, a, a trial that is able to, to reach endpoints and, and read out properly. So 80% of clinical trials don't recruit on time. So they have some timeline that gets blown out of the water. And every mm -hmm. time that happens, that's a drug that isn't available. And that's cost that goes into that trial that isn't going to developing other drugs. So mm -hmm. there are all these like micro ways along the way of drug development that, uh, that patients get lost or that things get more expensive. And to add to that, I think maybe something that resonates and is really easy to understand is understanding how treatments work in diverse populations. You know, clinical trials are younger, they're male, they're white. And so if you want to know how does this drug do amongst, you know, other, other populations, uh, amongst women, amongst people of color, uh, real world data and this, this you know, data capture is, is one of the best ways to do it. Great. I think it's very, uh, I would say, simple explanation. I got it. Like, although like I'm not into health tech, so that was very uh, self-explanatory, I would say. Now, because you were mentioning, you know, about collecting data, you know, and having these data sets from the trials, um, uh, clinical trials and so on. The question that comes to mind, and I know that you had done some, some work on that, which is leveraging machine learning and artificial intelligence to help you actually, and here I need your help actually to explain to me more, what are the benefits of, in, because when, when we say data, and if I have too much data, the first thing that comes to mind, okay, I can use machine learning because I can do some analysis on this. But what are other, uh, you know, use cases where AI and, and machine learning would be able to help uh, in this case? Yeah, well, I can kind of define the problem, which is, uh, especially in cancer, our starting point is an electronic health record. So this is the, the way that a physician 
you know, interacts with their patient in a way they keep track of their data. And so some things are stored in, in structured fields. So you have things like, you know, gender and age. These are things that are that are stored in a structured way. But then there is this huge mass of text and information that's stored in an entirely unstructured way. You know, the physician sits down right. and says, you know, Mrs. Smith is a very lovely blah, blah, blah. And then they tell you all the things about that cancer. Uh, also, I should maybe take an opportunity to mention when we say cancer, cancer is hundreds of different diseases. Uh, they all kind of share this idea of like, you know, a, a, a cell that is dividing too fast, but they are wildly different. And the things that we care about in terms of understanding and treating them are also wildly different. So um, so what you have is a big, big blob of text. You have, you know, right. many, many documents. And so if you want to understand and you want to do any kind of analysis or research on that data, the first thing you have to do is get that information out of it. Um, you have to do some sort of text extraction. Um, and maybe this is feeling more natural to people in a world of LLMs, but it's actually a hard problem. Some pieces of it are, are really easy. So uh, smoking status is a very easy thing to extract because it's it's sort of always in these like very easy to deal with chunks. Um, right. Whereas uh, did the patient uh, have a full resection of their disease? Uh, did the patient have a progression of their disease? These are complex concepts that are much harder to pull out. So to, to answer your question of like, what, are, what is it even doing? A really key thing that it's doing is it's taking unstructured, unformed inform information text and turning it into actually valuable information that can be used, you know, for insights. And that's something that we've been doing for a long time in a, in a sort of, uh, you know, sort of careful and cautious way, because like I said, it works really well for some things, works not great for other things. Uh, and so uh, that's been a process over the years as techniques get better, you know, as we have more labeled data of expanding the ways that we can use ML to extract that information from the data. Yeah, that's very clear to me now because you mentioned, you know, the, for people who are not familiar, when, when we say unstructured data, which is means like data which is sitting fragmented all the place and we don't have the labels on it. You mentioned, you know, like as, as a data sitting in a record, right? And as you, to your point, there are some stuff which is easy to extract um, like, you know, gender, uh, married, not married, single, I don't know, like all, all these like yeah. binary options, let's call them. And fine, even like when it comes a little bit to more, let's say if, if the um, MD writes there some, some, you know, someone comes to the clinic and they write some description, okay, uh, this lady came and she was suffering this, and then we described her, this drug to her and so on. Now. This is all in the sense of text, which is, as you said, people think it's easy, but it's not. But out of curiosity here, what about the media that get generated, Kat? Like, you know, the x-rays, the C-scan, <laughs> you know, the, yeah, all these data, like how easy it is or have, have you tried, I'm not sure, like to, to see a way, because I think when you go there, usually from my knowledge, is we rely on a physician or, I mean, an MD to tell us what they have seen and they write it in their reports. But yep. is there any way that AI can leverage, you know, to use these media? I mean, for sure. So this is an area we've been exploring for a couple of years. There's actually some interesting things about um, the fact that those images are not always stored in the same place as the rest of the record. So right. uh, you might have a, a, a medical record that contains all the text. 
But then there's a separate place that, you know, for example, MRIs or PET scans are are kept. Um, so there is actually um, an interesting thing about like where where do you have data? So we spent a, a, quite a while getting access to more of that scan data. And I would say, one, it's an entirely different problem. So there are um, there are companies out there, which I'm actually really excited about, that are doing radiology assist reads and, uh, tr you know, trying to use ML to augment physicians to make it, you know, radiology reads faster and better. And I think that's a really cool space that is really about, I think, more machine vision, uh, which is also AI, but a totally different sort of branch. So I think that's really cool. And I'm, I'm really excited about the work that's being done there. But for us, I think we then have a multimodal problem of we've got a scan. And in some cases, it might be useful to have the scan itself. In some cases, it might be useful to do a read on it and then compare it to what's in the physician record or do a read on it and just make that information available. And so that's something that we have been doing over the past few years uh, is to make that information available and uh, in, in sort of like a broader corpus. Another way you mentioned scans, but I'll just mention another way that we're bringing in extra data, um, genomic data is another mm -hmm. example, not necessarily of multimodal, but of something that is, uh, you know, a very different kind of information stored in a different way that is potentially very interesting to certain use cases. Um, and so, yeah, I think all of that together creates, creates more power, creates more knowledge in the world if you can bring all those things together. Absolutely. Now, one thing which is kind of funny, because um, I had a guest the other day, Sid Mohasib, and we were discussing, and previously I had another guest, Kasha, which is, she's an MD herself. So, yeah. People sometimes tend to be skeptical about AI. So when you tell them I'm using AI for something, and I think this started because I would not say because of ChatGPT, but I mean, you know, ChatGPT, you know, it, it it let the mass people see what AI can do because since some, uh, you know, last year, okay, people knows about the AI, but no one knew that you can actually have this large language model and you can do this analysis, and all of a sudden. All the people around the world, they know, ah, there's this AI thing that can do this. And people start to talk about hallucination of AI. And yeah, this AI doesn't understand anything. And it's a dump. From, of course, now we are talking science, we're talking technology. What you can tell, you know, people who might have heard it, I would not, to, I don't want to blame them directly. Maybe they have heard it from their friends. They've seen it on an article somewhere uh, on the internet. I want you, Kat, to explain why it should not be a concern and actually to the opposite it should it could be very beneficial well i mean honestly i'm i've been an ai skeptic too um flatiron was built on having humans do a lot of this work so i've talked maybe about more of the technology of text extraction but it's built on the back of having a lot of humans uh going in and labeling data and doing a lot of the the, the harder problems and so uh, interesting, like we're a company that was built on the idea of 10 years ago, ML cannot do this. Like you think ML can do this, but it cannot. And I, I think that was very accurate. And it's not just large language models. It's actually a lot of the developments of recent years. It's deep learning. It's some of the techniques that have come along. I think that, that the ML of today, it, you know, it's not, it's not the ML of when I was in school. It's not the ML of 10 years ago. It has different capabilities. None of that means that, that it's perfect or magic. Um, I think mm -hmm. it's closer to magic than it used to be. I think, you know, five years ago, even two years ago, I feel like you would use the word AI and someone and whatever people thought it could do whatever they dreamed of and and it can't necessarily. And I think we're 
large language models bridge a gap that we had in terms of being able to have a single model that is flexible and can do many things. Um, so that's all, that's all background. Now I'll actually answer your question, um, which is like, why shouldn't people be scared or, or why is it okay? I mean, it still can be used really badly. Um, there are, what I think you need to ask is, how are you dealing with the possibility of hallucination if you're using a large language model? Or if you're using a more traditional model, where do you put your cutoffs? How do you think about um, where, what levels you're willing to trust? Um, how do you think about maybe layers of checks, right? So you can use, you know, LLMs at various points to not only generate information, but also to check that information along the way. So like, it's not that there's no risk. I think there's also risk in people, by the way, like we've had humans doing this for a long time and humans are flexible and you can teach them lots of things. And, you know, there's a lot of value to them, but they make mistakes and they make different kinds of mistakes um, than computers do. So actually, one of the things that we found incredibly impactful is to combine the two. So maybe you use your uh, your large language model to do a summarization of a document or to tell you what part of a document is going to be most relevant. And then you have a human uh, pull that out. Or maybe you uh, have a model guess or, or predict what something's going to be, extract what something's going to be, and you have a human check it. And maybe you only do that a certain percentage of the time because that, that's how you're checking your model. There's a lot of different ways to do it. What I do think is probably still not in the realm of success is, oh, great, I've got a patient record. I've got a large language model. Boom, I've got answers. I think that still, you know, I think to, to say that that's possible, I think really undervalues the amount of engineering and thought that has to go into ensuring that you get the right answer. Yeah, 100%. Like as any other technology, you know, if it falls in the hands of wrong people, it can be harmful. So yeah, this is this is the nature of, of, of the lives we live. So nothing we can do much about it. But I encourage to try to protect, you know, this technology and try to harden it from falling in, in the wrong hands. And this will lead to the question because, you know, one of the concerns usually, because we know these AI models, whether the traditional one or the newer ones, they are actually collections of data. And you just mentioned, and here we're talking about healthcare. So we're talking yeah. about real clinical data. So how important it is to, while doing all this, keeping the privacy, keeping, you know, the data secure, right? So, and, you know, as a CTO, I think for you, it's, it's like a big responsibility as well. I know like you might have a CISO as well there, but I mean, as a CTO, because you are responsible for, you know, the infrastructure over there. Yeah. I mean, it's been the, the thing we think about, the thing that keeps us up at night since, since day one, you know, maybe to take a little bit of a, I, I as, a, as someone who studied economics, I always like when incentives align. And so I guess the good news is that if we ever were not good custodians of data, if we ever had a major breach, I think that would be the end of us as a company. So we are very incentivized um, to make sure that we are keeping data uh, private. And and I think a question that we often ask, uh, obviously, when we when we deliver data, it's it's anonymized. We strip out all identifiers. Um you know, we we have a, an expert to certify the de-identification of data before we deliver it. So that's obviously a, a huge part of it. We would never um, give someone's identified information out in any way. Um, but I think it's all you're also referring to like, OK, but you have all this data stored somewhere. 
Um, you have an infrastructure. You have to keep it safe along the way. Um, absolutely true. And honestly, like one of the most important things and one of the things that kind of pervades everything we do is could this hurt a patient? Um, either because we let patient let patient data out into the wild, which you know obviously would be a problem, but but also as we make micro decisions, you know, if this data was wrong, if this ML model was wrong, how would that hurt a patient, and how can we test for that and you know avoid that? So, you know, I think, and I'm sure we're not the only healthcare company, healthcare tech company that has this as like a, a you know a, a north star, but like do no harm to patients is absolutely like the first and most important thing. Yeah, 100%. Now, one thing, you, you know, I get to know that you predict that by like 95% of the data that uh, you, I mean, you, you, you try today to, to extract would be automated, I mean, extracted through AI models. So what are the key milestones, you know, to achieve that, to achieve that result? Wow. Um, I mean, I've definitely been saying, I think we can get to 50% um, by the end of next year. Uh, key milestones along the way. I mean, some of it's, I think what's interesting about large language models, um, if you're doing everything with traditional ML, you're building a model for every single thing that you need to extract. So we have really large data models. They cover... Um, Things all the way from stage of cancer to things like uh, the the depth of the resection in a melanoma, side of colon and cancer, biomarkers, progression of disease, all these things that um, are, it's a really broad data model. And as I mentioned, cancer is not one thing. Cancer is a hundred different diseases. So if you have to build a custom model for every single one of those things from scratch, you'll spend a very long time <laughs> getting to that 95%. And you'll, you'll you'll honestly never get there because there's always new things. There's, this is a good thing. There's always evolution in practice. There's always new things on the market. So I think the key milestones are really finding ways to build one thing and have that apply to a large swath of the data, whether that's a single model, whether that's an LLM strategy, um, even whether that's, a, like I kind of mentioned, a hybrid strategy of you know, this is a model that we can apply broadly and it's not as good as a custom model, but then we use people on the other end and that's actually like the fastest, best way. Um, I think this idea of how do you, how do you find things that apply more broadly? How do you find ML that doesn't require months of, of sort of careful crafting to get to you to the perfect model? That's the, that's actually like the milestone and, and having, having those along the way, maybe for different chunks of the data model to me is where we need to get to and, and you know, the way we'll get to success. Yeah, that's that's great to hear, you know, and I'm looking forward. So like you mentioned at the beginning also, Kat, like, you know, you're, you're doing a lot of uh, expansions now. And, you know, I get to know also that uh, you've, you're doing some collaboration with, like in the U.S. with the FDA and, you know, you're mm -hmm. trying to establish, you know, some <clears throat> uh, partnership in, in Europe, in the U.K. So... Mm -hmm. My question is, you know, um, when we talk about, and you, 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 kept, you kept repeating this, you know, a couple of times about uh, that cancer is not one disease. I want you, of course, like we are not in the medical show, but I mean, in a simple term from technology perspective, why you, you know, highlighted this and underlined this 
And, you know, because I know this is I'm asking because that means you need to deal with a lot of data sources. And now that you are working on a global level, so that means you will have more broad, you know, data sets that would come to you. So if you can just, you know, touch on, on this. So for people who can be enlightened uh, on what we are talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason I, I highlight this is, is a couple of things. The, the fact that cancer is not one disease. I think at, importantly, as you said, it means that we're not developing one data set. We're developing, you know, dozens or, or hundreds, depending on, on what we're talking about. And, and for example, I have worked in other diseases. I've worked in, for example, diabetes in the past. Diabetes, by contrast, is a very simple disease. There's, you know, two versions of diabetes. And yes, there are um, certain subtypes under them, but they're not treated radically differently. There's right. a set of drugs you give in a certain order. There's a set of tests you order. And even though the underlying causes for even different kinds, you know, type, different type 1 diabetics might be different, the way you treat the disease is substantially similar and the information you need to treat the disease is substantially similar. Um, in cancer, so maybe the easiest way to think about this is something like a lung cancer, which is a, which is a solid mass inside your lung versus a blood cancer, which is that you have certain types of cells that are mutating and circulating throughout your body, I think it's very obvious that one you can potentially cut out and another you cannot. Um, and that's such such a wildly different disease. So I think that's really helpful to understand when you're thinking about things like um, building out data to support different diseases, um, that they're not all the same, that they do require different information. Um, it's important when you think about where cancer money is going and the fact that getting a better treatment for breast cancer doesn't necessarily mean a better treatment for prostate cancer or hepatic right. cancer or any of those, right? So I think as a consumer, that's an interesting and important point to understand. Also, different cancers have wildly different survival characteristics. Um, these are all things that I think as a layman, I, certainly things I didn't really comprehend before I joined Flatiron. And maybe another interesting fact about it is as a doctor, as a cancer doc, there are specialists in particular, you know, in particular cancers, but a lot of, especially community practice docs, are dealing with all of them. They are, all, you know, mm -hmm. all comer cancer docs. And that is a really hard problem um, to be able to treat all of these different diseases effectively, um, to keep up with the literature on all of them. And so, again, as a technologist, as we think about problems we're solving and as a company that has solutions at the point of care, I think that's another thing to think about is how do we support docs? Um, who are treating, you know, again, not one disease, but hundreds of diseases, um, some of which are really common. I'm sure they see, you know, every doc sees a lot of breast cancer patients. Um, you know, there, a lot of docs are not necessarily seeing the rarer tumors that are out there. Yeah, got it. Now, uh, also, I got to know that uh, you, you started a collaboration with Sanofi to do some work on um, having, you know, the clinical trials more efficient by stream mm -hmm. streamlining the data acquisition at the point of care. So yeah. why this is important? Like, tell, tell me more about that. Okay, well, clinical trials are, I think, a holy grail in some ways, because if you come into it from a technology or an engineering perspective, and you look at what we do, uh, honestly, it, it looks a little uh, absurd. Like the cost of it, the amount of... Um, pieces that are built up around it, you would never build that system from scratch. Like this is a system that's evolved over, you know, 50 years. And it's a, it's a very conservative system for, for a great reason, right? Again, like let's not harm patients. But what that often means is that 
you can't make changes or you do things the way they were done. And so we have systems that reflect a 1970s level of technology and uh, and interconnectivity that are not uh, that are not serving us in a modern world. And the reason you should care is that clinical trials are incredibly expensive. They are billion dollars potentially, Ooh. depending on the size. Um, and so the billion dollars, you may not care about the pharma company losing a billion dollars, but what you should care about is that that's a billion dollars that is not going to other drug development. Um, and also, it takes a long time. So you might have a molecule that is ready to hit a phase one trial today, and it could be easily six or seven years before it gets through its phase one, its phase two, its phase three. And even then, it might have more questions that need to be answered by a phase four. And so that is a length of time in which patients are not getting that treatment. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important, right? I'm not saying that clinical trials are not, they're critical. We need to use them to understand whether that treatment is in fact valuable in any way. Um, but as you, you as a consumer should care about efficacy and efficiency of clinical trials because of the weight that they put on the technology ecosystem or the, the, the infrastructure of, uh, of, of healthcare. And so I think that there is a number of ways, and you know, I'm not alone in this. I think the market also thinks there's a lot of ways in which we can improve clinical trials. Uh, one of the sort of more obvious ones is the way in which data is entered. Um, a physician who's participating in a clinical trial records all their information in their electronic health record like they do normally. And then they have to copy it over into the database for the trial. And that has a lot of problems. One, it takes time and energy. um, And often you have to have like a separate person to to do that work. Uh, And it leads to potential errors, right? So, you know, human copying is not a perfect science. Uh, And so just as like a, a starter point, like that's just the very beginning of it, um, you can see a real opportunity to directly connect the data that the physician's using in the clinical practice with the data that ends up being sort of input into the trial. Uh, and like, I, I think that that the more you look at clinical trials, the more you see that there's opportunities um, to to make them smoother and more efficient. Great explanation. Even, you know, I'm not uh, familiar with the topic, but you explained it very well. Thank you, Kat, for this. Now, you know, from... Again, because being a CTO and coming back to, to the CTO, so you need, so your your customers usually are, uh, you know, clinics, right? And I mean, drug companies maybe, mm-hmm. am I correct? So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know because, you know, and this is a CTO show and being, you know, in, in, in a company and having the role of CTO, whether you are still startup or growing up, it's important to understand the customer. So how, how, how to say different or how uh, is it harder to deal with, you know, this persona, which are, you know, like uh, healthcare people versus maybe, you know, having other personas in different industries? Well, I think the thing that's hard about healthcare, so you mentioned that, that our customers are both uh, the practices, so the docs and everyone else who works uh, at the point of care helping patients. And also on the flip side, the pharmaceutical companies who are using the data to make their, you know, uh, processes right. better, faster, stronger. So it's two two pretty different worlds. Uh, you know, I think that uh, working at the point of care is hard because the physicians at the point of care are so overwhelmed, underwater. I, I don't know what the right word to use is, but they're under such strain. 
Um, they have to go through patients incredibly quickly. They are facing sort of decreasing um, revenues every year as as sort of the system. And this is a U.S. specific thing, I would say, um, though I don't think that U.S. is the only place where doctors are are struggling. Um, right. And and they're feeling like their tools are not serving them, right? They're they're feeling like they're spending less time with patients. They're more more time entering things, and so they very reasonably are not that they're interested in innovation at like a conceptual level because they want things to get better. But an individual level, every time we move a button on them, that's something that they have to relearn that slows them down. So I do think that innovating in that space can be hard because the users can afford so little in terms of change cost because of the strain that they're under. So I think it's a, it's a place where you need to have a ton of empathy for those individuals. We obviously have a lot of cancer docs on staff who live in that world, who still have clinical practices. And I think that's really important because uh, versus, you know, making a, you know, Amazon's website, uh, they can A-B test things all day long because, you know, if I need to go buy toilet paper, uh, they're not super worried about that, you know, taking me an extra one second uh, they, you know, they they can test out things. Uh, we have to be much more, I think, cautious and sure of the changes we're making that they're actually genuinely an improvement. We can't do things like A/B testing because it messes with them so badly. So it's not. I don't. I don't know what's if it's even that it's the healthcare part that's hard. Although certainly there are regulations and it's very costly to develop in the healthcare space. That is part of it. But I think just any time you're building for a population that has so little slack in their lives, um, I think that that is is hard um and this is the tool that they're using every single day on, on the, <laughs> yeah please please go ahead well and I, I think on the pharma side uh i think that that's much more like a normal b2b relationship you know pharma companies are made of people uh they're trying to get their stuff done they're trying to figure out if if there's a faster way or if our data can help them um that i, I there you know every every industry has its own characteristics but in some ways that feels like a much more, you know, normal relationship that I think folks who have mm -hmm. been in B2B spaces probably are, are, you know, it wouldn't feel wildly different to them, though the, you know, the structure and the politics of every organization is its own unique, you know, special snowflake. Yeah, I've heard it like from multiple people who are in the healthcare. So, you know, and I think it's a common trait is the regulation that you mentioned, because, you know, you cannot move as fast as like maybe other industries. And it's not only in the U.S. In the U.S., you have the FDA. In Europe, like there's like uh, something similar. Here in in Dubai, we have something very similar also as well. And you know, to to take approval, sometimes it takes too much time. So it was like their number one, I would say, uh, it's not struggle, but kind of a challenge. You know, to 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 move things forward. So yeah, and and then it's coming everywhere. Now we talked a lot, Cat, uh, about you know ML and AI. So but what other, you know, like emerging techs are you seeing having big impact in the healthcare industry, in, in the tech, of course? Well, I think a lot of it does come back to AI and ML in some ways, in the sense that where I think that there's a lot of opportunity in, in the healthcare industry in general is mm -hmm. in the glue. So there's, you know, things that touch docs. And I just talked about how hard that can be because they, they have sort of limited resources, um, you know, and things that touch patients. Uh, and then there's, uh, you know, obviously at the other end, sort of drug development. Um, there is a whole bunch of little interstitial systems in between. Um, think about like medical coding in the United States is 
a career that people can have. It is a thing you do, which is you look at a record and you say, this is how much we should charge for it. Uh, insurance processing is another one. Um, I think that there is, and I think that, that that we'll see a lot of companies in these like very specific spaces of, I can make this pipeline, this particular part of the problem uh, better. And I think mm -hmm. that AI is one of the tools that's actually going to be critical in that. I think that the ability to um, sort of quickly process data, especially in cases where the cost of being wrong isn't quite so high. So, you know, being being wrong, telling a doctor, oh, we think your patient has stage four lung cancer. And if you're wrong, that's like, that, I mean, presumably the doc will catch it, but that that's not great, right? Um, the telling an insurance company, we think that this is a level three visit and it's actually a level two visit costs money, but maybe doesn't have the same implication on human lives. And it's something you can ask it about as an economic aggregate. Is it okay to have a certain level of error here? And so I think that there are pretty unsexy, <laughs> but interesting um, parts of the healthcare ecosystem. Even what I talked about with clinical trials, you know, it, this, this sort of like, how do we remove data entry is one piece of a larger puzzle. And I think if you looked at the entire healthcare ecosystem from drug development all the way to patient care, there are these little little bits that can be that can be carved out and and improvement made on them. Mm -hmm. So if I want to ask you, because coming back and I agree with you, like uh, it's AI and ML that that gonna play out, um, most of the role in getting um, things to advanced stages. If we come back, let's say, and record the same episode after five years or 10 years, would we be talking about AI doing 95% of, of the job that it's done today by humans? Do you think so? Well, what do we mean by the job, I guess? Um, you know, is AI replacing I, I doctors? Tell you, of course not. <laughs> not replacing doctors. Uh, you know, I, I know the, the hiccups there, but at least, you know, from, let's say, drug uh, you know, getting a, a new drug formula, let's say, producing a new drug. Well, I think that there are a ton of places where it's speeding it up, right? Like it's something that isn't even in far, in Flatiron's wheelhouse, but but protein folding and the ability to uh, try out a bunch of different uh, drug models in, in C2 is like a really cool use of, of technology that's been going on for for a while of like, can we, instead of sort of handcrafting a couple of molecules, can we have an automatically generated 2000 molecules and then an algorithm that helps us pick which ones are plausible? Like that's been going on for a while. Um, I think that, I mean, it's it's like, a, I think it's t technically, no, I don't think it'll be 95%, but I think that it will feel like a lot of jobs have changed dramatically. I'm sure you've talked about on the show, um, you know, the job of engineering changing. Um, and right. and some of and, and I think what's interesting about it is I think some of it will go unnoticed. You know, even in my answer to your question, I was like, yeah, AIML, and I completely glossed over the fact that um, the that uh, data technology has come so far in the last ten years um, that we're using completely different data platforms, which is crucial in being able to have large data sets that uh, you know have heavy processing. But I glossed over it almost because I like forgot that it didn't used to be that way. That we didn't used to have easy access to um, to, you know, like things that are like, like spark underlying them or easy ways to have data live in a bunch of different places at the same time. Um, you know, that's, that's an interesting thing to think about is I don't, I don't know that in 10 years we will even kind of realize how much it's changed because it will be a new normal for us. 
And so I think there are some jobs that will go away. I think there's a lot of things that will change. I, I think for physicians, I, I hope that they change because I hope that the job becomes more one of, you know, the, the computer is better at taking its own records. It's better at sort of knowing what you're likely to, to want to suggest something. And then you as a physician spending time with the patient, understanding the patient's priorities and selecting among a couple of curated options. And in some cases saying, you know, no, you're wrong. We need to do something else. You know, that's what I'd love the job of a physician to, to become or to get back to in some ways. Um, but I think it'll happen in incremental pieces. And by the time we get there in the same way that I think we have forgotten what it was like 20 years ago, I think that that, that will be our experience. Yeah, 100%. And what we repeated here on the show, Kat, is it's kind of augmented uh, ability to the people. Like, because, yeah, it will not replace a doctor, but it will replace a doctor who doesn't know how to use AI, right? So this is what we, for example, we said. It will not replace an engineer, but it will replace an engineer who doesn't know how to use AI. It will not replace even office people. I mean, people who work at the office. But if they don't have, you know, the ability to leverage this technology, they will struggle. And personally, I don't think AI will take over jobs, actually to create new kind of jobs. Like this is my theory. And we might be doing something completely different. But look, like there is a fact, people like yourself will be always be needed because actually you need to be the brain behind it, for example, your team behind you also as well. And this is coming from a technology background, you know, and I'm biased again. Um, there's a lot of things that goes in the background that people doesn't see. So, and excuse me, Kat, because I'm taking this part from you because, and especially in healthcare, because I had the privilege to consult for some healthcare, um, uh, you know, institutes before when I was in the corporate job. And you think, yeah, like they are just a hospital and, you know, like they are sitting behind computers, but there's a huge systems behind there, you know, and, you know, the, clinical systems, you know, patient management systems and all this. It's not something easy, guys. And, you know, Kat, like really, I always appreciate people like yourself, especially because now you are working in something much bigger that, you know, you have a lot of things you have to deal with. And saying this, um, I got to ask you a question. Did I miss to ask you anything? <laughs> oh, I think we covered quite a wide range here. Yeah, so this is my famous end of the show question. Maybe, maybe actually, let's talk a little bit about. Um, we touched on a little bit, but like bias in healthcare, um, yes. because you, you know we talked a little bit about what should people be scared of with hallucination. But I think you know bias is obviously something that comes up kind of every time you talk about AI and healthcare, right? right. Um, and it, it's very real, right? Like we've seen examples. Uh, we know that that models reflect the world that they are, the data that they're created with, which is the world we live in, which is a very unfair world um, with a lot of disparities. And so I want to like acknowledge that and say that, you know, first first and foremost, I think that everyone working in that sp this space has to be using like a, a health equity prioritization lens when they're thinking about their models, when they're thinking about testing their models. So, you know, I have a model. The first thing I'm going to do is look at how does it treat patients of color? How does it treat you know, women, how you basically like, how does it treat these, these groups that are not less represented in the data or have, um, have historically been sort of discriminated against in various ways. I also think there's a huge opportunity because the same place that an algorithm can amplify bias is also a pl place where an algorithm can be used to dampen bias. 
So what I can't do is go talk to every single physician on the planet and talk through the decisions they make and try to figure out why, you know, their black patients are getting this prescription a little bit less. You know, what I can do is build an algorithm, test it thoroughly that, you know, has more equity or helps to to correct some of that inequity. And I think that's a huge opportunity that we need to be as excited about as we are scared of the the, the bias inherent or the or the risks that could come around, along with it. Mm hmm. I just remembered one question that I should have asked you, Kat, and uh, it's kind of also important as well. Um, you know, with the experience you have with healthcare, you know, and over the years, now let's say, is, do you advise, you know, fellow entrepreneurs and, of course, like uh, techie people to go into healthcare? And if they decide to, what are the advice that you would give? I think healthcare is really rewarding and it's really hard. So we talked a little bit about it's slower to develop both because of regulations, but also because you have to be careful and also because a lot of the individuals are under a lot of strain. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a high impact potential. Um, you have to have a really good plan. So it's not a place where you can sort of flounder around and say, you know, as someone who's never been in it, oh, I think this is a thing that will work. You have to have a lot of input and a lot of help from people who are in the industry. This is probably true of any industry, but I think it's so especially true of healthcare that you need to have physicians and scientists who are in it helping you along the way and be prepared for it to be a slower road than, you know, oh, I made a social networking platform or, oh, I'm selling a new thing. It's a, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a different path. And we've experienced, I think we've had a lot of success and we've also experienced setbacks in terms of how fast the world was going to move, um, how quickly the state of the world was going to change, how quickly things would be accepted. And that's a reality, I think, also uh, of being in the healthcare space is that for very reasonable reasons, the world is going to move slowly, slower on that than they are on, you know, the next Candy Crush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but is that too old a reference? Do we think about that anymore? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like guys, like don't think about healthcare startups. Like to be, you know, you will be jumping and bringing the bells very quickly and doing all this. It's like a long-term game. But as you said, I agree with you, Kat. I have a lot of friends who works, um, you know, not necessarily in startups, but I mean in in the healthcare, in technology. And yeah, they tell me it's rewarding because every time they see, for example. Uh, even if they are like working in, in the IT department, in the operations side, and they say, okay, like every time we know that because of the system that we have just installed, someone's life gets saved, we feel, you know, that, that the reward over there, like something, it's not about money all the time. It's also about, you know, the human touch as well. Um, Kat, like, I don't know, like, did we miss anything? Any, any more uh, things from your side, please? I think we're good now. I think, I think we did it. <laughs> okay, great. Because I may try to make sure as much as possible. Oh, just, you know, I, I have to ask you something. Where people can find more uh, about you and about the company? Uh, yeah, so, so for Flatiron, it's flatiron.com. Uh, and for me, probably my LinkedIn, uh, Kat Miller is my LinkedIn. I am not an active, a particularly active LinkedIn user, but anytime I, I um, have a speaking engagement or I'll, I'll certainly post this on there. Um, so that's where you can kind of find what I'm up to. Okay, great. I will make sure that I will put the links in the show notes. 
Kat, thank you very much for giving the time today. I know you have a busy schedule and you're building great things uh, over there. And for the audience, uh, guys, like I hope that you find this useful. I find it very useful, honestly. Keep the feedbacks coming. We're trying to make a mix between all, I would say, the verticals across the technology. Even we are trying to bend in something not tech necessarily, marketing, sales. So for you, like if you are a, um, you know, young entrepreneur or startup founder. So you need to understand all the things going around. So I'm trying to, as much as possible, have this mix. And thank you for the feedbacks. Like I'm, I'm getting them, I'm reading them. And I need to see even some, not only thank you, great show. Like if you, there's something I need to enhance, please let me know, guys. Like I love to read these as well. So thank you very much for tuning in and uh, we'll meet again very soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Hit that subscribe button, share the show with your tech-savvy friends and fellow entrepreneurs, and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Your support means the world to us.